You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All of us are tied to our phones for all kinds of amazing reasons, right? It is our first port of call in the morning when we wake up. It's the last thing we check before we go to bed. But with that, what hasn't kept up with that incredible pace of technology are the protections and the rights and the standards and the rules and ethical behavior of companies that do business on the internet. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So yeah, it was my birthday just a couple of days before we are recording this and my birthday always gets me a little reflective. This year, I found myself thinking about just how much has changed during my lifetime when it comes to personal finance. For the record, I'm 58, so just to put it out there, one of the biggest things that I've noticed is that all of us are much more connected by the things that we buy. For example, if you're shopping for a phone, then you are probably getting it from Apple or Samsung. If you're at the grocery store, Chances are you have something from Nestle or General Mills in your shopping cart. If you're ordering anything online, yeah, you are probably doing it through Amazon, which is the biggest online retailer by a long shot. Today, we live in a world where a couple dozen large corporations have this huge influence on our lives. And that level of interconnectedness, it often comes with risk. We see news headlines all the time these days, actually, about product recalls, about data leaks that can affect millions of people at a time. And the bigger the company, the harder it seems to be to demand change when things go wrong. According to a survey from Consumer Reports, only 35% of Americans, a shockingly low number, by the way, only 35% trust that the products they buy won't cause them physical harm, and 43% feel that they're powerless to change unfair consumer practices. We've also lost trust in the government to regulate businesses. 65% of us agree that the government favors corporate interests over the rights of consumers. But helplessness this sort of helplessness, it should not be the end of the story because we do have power as consumers. There are billions of us. And our guest today is here to show us how to harness that power and push companies to be better. Marta Tolato is the president and CEO of Consumer Reports, a nonprofit that uses research, uses activism to create a fairer marketplace. They review the safety of products that all of us use every day and conduct surveys on how consumers are feeling, like the one I just mentioned. And they are also out there advocating for better legal, financial, and environmental protections. 
As CEO for the past eight years, Marta has also spearheaded efforts to protect your digital rights by helping all of us avoid cyber breaches and surveillance by tech companies. And her latest project is a new book that tackles all the risks that we face in the marketplace today. It's called Buyer Aware, I love that title, by the way, Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Marketplace. Marta, welcome. It's great to be here, and happy birthday to you, Jean. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I just want to say, I think that the work that you're doing is incredibly important, and I want to know a little bit more about you and about your background. I know you've had a long career in public service and in not-for-profit work, but what took you to this position as the leader of the leading consumer organization in the country? Well, thank you for that. It, it's it's really great to be able to be here and talk a little bit about the work we do. But I often get that question: How you? Why you, Marta? How did you end up a, a consumer advocate in the largest consumer advocacy organization in the world? Really, six million members. It's uh, sixty labs uh, and all nonprofit and all supported by our members. And it really starts, I think, so many of us want and long for a life of passion and purpose. And usually our origin story leads us to that thought. And for me, as an immigrant who came here at two years old, leaving Havana, Cuba with my parents for a place that could provide uh, democratic freedoms after a revolution where we thought we were getting a change that we needed, instead we got another dictatorship that followed the one we were trying to overcome. So I think you come to the U.S. in search of that democratic freedom, and you also are confronted with a marketplace. And the marketplace is where you, all of us go to reach our aspirations, to get a loan, to buy a house, to get a car. And I guess what motivated me was a sense that in writing the book was that to tell a larger story about our democracy, that I think it can only flourish if we have a marketplace that's fair, that's transparent, and that's safe for all of us. And that's sort of the larger reason. And as you say, there's so much about the marketplace that is changing so rapidly. And I also wanted this book to be a very practical playbook for all of us who are out there every day trying to make smart decisions with incomplete information. And what's so ironic today is that we have more information at our fingertips than ever. And so the question is just how trustworthy is it? What am I missing here? How do you detect what is real and what's not real when you're making decisions that are fairly consequential? Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, this idea that, yeah, there's a lot of information, but maybe there's too much information. Just level set for me. You know, when we think of consumer rights, a lot of us who are my age or older, you know, flash back on Ralph Nader and the origin of consumer advocacy. Bring us up to date. Where are we now? And how would you grade us on the consumer advocacy in this country? I think the consumer advocacy movement it really began when we stopped being, we people stopped being producers and growing our own food and became consumers. And we were going to the marketplace and you start to see 
the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, fast forward, we are no longer connected to the process as much as we are to the marketplace. But, you know, in the 60s, I grew up in the 60s as a kid, and not only was it the consumer movement, it was the women's movement. It was the civil rights movement. It was just a number of populations wanting to be heard. Why is the burden on us in terms of making some of these choices in the marketplace? And I think Ralph was my first boss. I was his intern as a college student. And so I always really admired just how much information and data powered his thinking and his expectation that you have to do right by consumers. Remember, the marketplace is supply and demand. We have a voice, and that is the demand side. And any market can thrive, but it needs us to thrive. And so how do we exercise that agency every day? One of the things that I think all of us do in terms of what we expect to the market is we assume when we go out to the marketplace that the product that we're buying, whether it's a financial product or it's a bed for your child, that it's safe, that somehow it's been evaluated and that we could bring it home or we could sign the dotted line and that we're protected. And that was not the case for many years. We succeeded in some consumer protections in the air we breathe, the water we drink. But like anything, the market is a very dynamic place. And a lot of our laws are not moving as fast as the speed of tech and the way we're seeing our technology change so much. And maybe that's why we end up with such a low score when it comes to the trust that we have in the products that we're buying today. You mentioned women's rights and other civil rights, environmental rights, racial justice. How do you see consumer rights tying into all of those things? Because they are all connected, right? I believe so. I have a whole chapter in the book where I sort of just make that connection. And I say consumer rights are civil rights. And and to me, I think that's the case because, you know, and I, I always, it's not an original idea, I have to say. I always go back to an FDR quote that was always very motivating for me when he said, you know, uh, freedom is not a half and half affair. If you have guarantee equal opportunity in the polling place, you have to guarantee equal opportunity in the marketplace. Again, that's where we are going to reach our aspirations, able to have that social mobility we need to have for our families, for ourselves. And if there are all manners of trips and traps in the marketplace, if you think you're getting a loan and you're finding yourself in a whirlpool of debt, or you can't get a mortgage for a particular house because of the color of your skin, that's not democracy. That's a discrimination. That's injustice. That's uh, coercion. If you buy something and you're forced, rather than to take that company to court, you're forced by virtue of a law that you didn't even know existed, just by virtue of you buying that product, you are given an arbitrator by that company and you have to basically agree to what that is. That's forced arbitration. So it's an obstacle course and it shouldn't be and it doesn't need to be that way. We have to have the protections and the rights in the marketplace that will guarantee us the ability to have a marketplace where we can thrive and be protected by some of the things that we can't see, feel, or touch, right? It's not very transparent. I want to get into the book and really talk about the biggest threats to consumer safety right now. But before we do that, why now to write the book, right? Clearly, if you were Ralph Nader's intern, you have been doing this for a very long time. Why this book right now? Was there something that changed about the marketplace in the last couple of years that made you think, I, I got to put this out there? 
for sure. Let's be clear, in the hardware world, we're still on the front lines of what we have to do to make sure that we have safe protection and rights in the marketplace. But the thing that has changed that I believe has really shifted the power away from consumers is the digital marketplace. That technology has been revolutionary. We, all of us are tied to our phones for all kinds of amazing reasons, right? It is our first port of call in the morning when we wake up. It's the last thing we check before we go to bed. But with that, what hasn't kept up with that incredible pace of technology are the protections and the rights and the standards and the rules and ethical behavior of companies that do business on the internet in the digital marketplace. That's the thing that I think has put so much of our consumer power in a place where we lack agency today. And that's why I felt it was so important to kind of talk about what's getting in our way. How do you rip the veil off of that and begin to create an awareness as a first step for how to make change happen? One of the things that I like most about the book is how tactical it is, that it doesn't just point out the problems, it actually shows us a way toward the solution. So we're a money show. So let's start there. Let's start with the financial dangers that consumers face. You write about the predatory practices that make it harder for people to pay off loans, to get insurance, to get mortgages, so much more. All of this in a rising interest rate environment where consumers are taking on more debt than we've seen them take on in quite some time. So what are the specific financial traps that people need to be aware of, that women in particular need to be aware of, and what can we do to protect ourselves? Jean, you're right. In the marketplace, we see payday lenders that are cheating customers with impunity, especially in most vulnerable communities where you have a lot of unbanked and you have soaring interest rates. But now, Let's take some of those vulnerabilities and translate them to the digital marketplace. What's different? What's changing? Mm-hmm. What makes that less transparent and making us more vulnerable? Let's go to something that all of us have to do, and that is get car insurance when in your car. And you're doing that. And most of us are doing that on the internet. You go to a car insurance company, you plug in your information, you get an algorithm sorts through and gives you what your premium is going to be. And we make an assumption about our premium that it's based on our driving record. That if I'm a good driver, if I'm not getting tickets, I'm not speeding, I don't have that fender bender, I'll be able to have some control and agency over that premium. Well, what's happening is that the car insurance companies are looking at more than your driving record. They're actually looking at your income. They're looking at where you live. They're doing that through your zip code. And they're making calculations about risks that have nothing to do with your driving record. And what we discovered when we looked at those algorithms is that there's an inherent bias in them. Because if you live in a black neighborhood versus Latino versus white, that's more determinant of the pricing on that premium. So we thought that technology would eliminate bias and eliminate, but the reality is that bias is migrating into those algorithms because they're only as good as the data that get poured into them. And the other aspect is so much is changing in the banking world, right? Yeah. And this is a finance show. So let's be honest. Many of us are using financial apps on our phone. We know that. We use peer-to-peer payment apps. What I think a lot of consumers don't realize is that they are not guided by the same rules and protections as the traditional banking world. So when we looked at cash apps, we looked at Zelle, uh, Venmo, 
If you send that money to the wrong person, there's no guarantee that you're going to be made whole. So I think we're, once again, the technology is moving at such a rapid pace, but we've got to make sure that we have the protections in place to be sure that the apps we use and the and the technology that we use puts consumers first as opposed to make us more vulnerable than we have been. So I think the surveillance as well. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, a lot of these fintech apps, a lot of these, they put themselves out there. They put themselves out there for free. And a long time ago, Frank Abagnale, who is a security expert, many people know him from the movie Catch Me If You Can, but he said to me, if you don't know where the charge is or what you're paying for the product, you know, make no beans about it. You are the product, right? Or your data is the product. And part of the danger in this digital world, specifically with all of these financial products and insurance products, is data privacy. They're collecting our personal information. They're making a profit on it. Should we be trying to shut this down? Should we be trying to keep our data off of these various services? And does trying even work anymore? Well, you're right. What powers these quote-unquote free models is our data, right? The more we use these platforms, the more data they have about us. So we have gone into what's called a marketing surveillance economy, where we're being surveilled constantly. Who we talk to on the internet, what we buy becomes, so we've become the commodity, as you say. We're no longer the consumer. And there are no tabs on what's off base in terms of our privacy and our information. So our personal data is collected without our consent, and it's sold to third parties to be valuable. And as far as uh, how we secure that, I think our personal privacy, the control of our data, the security of that data has been left up to us, right? Uh, So in this world, How is it that our privacy has become a setting on a device instead of a consumer right? And that's what we're fighting for, is we need to see settings on our devices in a connected world that are private by default, that are designed with our privacy and intention in mind, not to fuel a business model that we never agreed to. And I I think what these platforms want us to think is that another way is not possible. And that's just not true. I totally agree with you. But between now and then, right, between today and the day where I hope we have this privacy as a default, what do we do? So the first thing you want to do is go to see our security planner. It's a free security planner. It walks you through every single one of your devices. What can you do tomorrow to start closing some of those doors and shutting down, especially women? You know, our geolocation device is really uh, dangerous. We know we're more vulnerable to stalking, to harassment. So I just want to flag that for the listeners because that's something that you want to look at in your devices. So I would say the first step you can do is make sure you do that security planner. And one of the things that we're working on now, which is longer term, as you say, is there's no, uh, on the horizon, no federal privacy law 
that we can see. We have seen some on the state level in California, in Maine. We're working on that. We hope that generates the momentum. And there are things that you can do and sign up for to be part and to have your voice heard. But I would say you're right, Gene. First thing we have to do is, unfortunately, the burden is on us right now to start shutting those doors. And once you do that, one of the things that I think generates power and change is not just your individual action, but our collective voice. But the first step is awareness. Yeah, totally agree. I want to talk more about physical products. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that our partner Edelman Financial Engines is in the business of tailoring personal investment solutions for the wealth that you are building and growing and protecting. And their investment management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research. Their planners do not sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter where you're going next, see how they can help you get there. Go to planefe.com to get your free investment review. I'm talking with Marta Talado, president and CEO of Consumer Reports, author of the new book, Buyer Aware. So we have spent some time on the digital marketplace. Let's talk about physical products. Testing product safety has been a focus of Consumer Reports since it started in 1936. What would you say are the biggest physical safety issues for consumers right now? Let me back up and just say how important it is that your listeners know that we are independent, that we buy all the products that we test, that we have 60 laboratories, and that we have never accepted advertising. And I think that's foundational. That's how you build trust. We are a nonprofit. That means we don't accept any incentives from private companies. So there are new generations of chemicals out there. And that is what some of our testing has surfaced. And one of the chemicals is something called PFAS. And PFAS is very common in the things you spray onto your upholstery to make sure that the stains, that they are guarded from stains or your rugs. And one of the things we're doing now is we also learned that PFAS is very common in fast food wrappers around food and that it leaches onto your food as well. And we tested that. Unbelievable. It is. It absolutely is. One of the upshots of that testing, however, is that we were able to get commitments from some fast food chains to start moving away from the wrappers that they're currently using. And the other thing I think that is even equally concerning, and one of the things that we did recently that I thought was a way of providing consumers with agency and participating in our labs and our testing is that we wanted to test your tap water. Now, the tap water is something you need to trust. Well, what we learned, we distributed over 100 kits around the country. We trained our volunteers. And what came back was that an extraordinary amount of PFAS chemical, and they're also called forever chemicals because they take a really long time to break down in your body. We know that they're cancer-causing agents, and we know that they are also contributing to developmental delays in children. We found PFAS chemicals in tap water around the country. So it is remarkable. And we were recognized by a fast company for that test. But I think the reward came when we saw the infrastructure bill come out of Congress where $10 billion was allocated 
to looking at this problem in our tap water. So yes, there are new harms. As much as technology is evolving, the traditional products that we look at also. And and I would say that, you know, here, I know you're, most of the folks who are listening are women, and I would say that we have some challenges there. All of us are familiar with the pink tax. That's right. We buy products that are exactly the same thing as what is marketed to men, and we pay a premium for that. Even a child's helmet, if it's pink, it costs more than if it's blue. But one thing that we've been fighting for quite some time is that women are 73% more likely than men to be seriously injured in a frontal crash, car crash, when they're wearing a seatbelt. And we also know that we're 70% more likely to die. Is that because we sit so much closer to the airbag and sit so much closer to the wheel because we're smaller? Or is it because the dashboards are designed in some, or the cars are designed in some way that doesn't serve a woman's anatomy? Well, it's even more fundamental. It is that way because the National Highway Traffic Administration still uses male test dummies in all of its crash testing. And those male test dummies, they're not adequate in terms of understanding where harm is and how our biologies and how our structure is going to react in a car crash. And so that testing influences design, that design carries into the model of the car, and then we are in those cars. So we are still fighting that fight to make that happen, to make that change. How's that fight going? This has gone on way too long, but we're trying to raise as much awareness as we can about that because there's just no excuse for it. Uh, No. absolutely no excuse for it. And again, in the interim, As a woman who is often in a car, as our listeners who are women are often in cars, what do we do? Well, be a part of the community that's raising our voices, right? So go to buyerware.cr.org, and we have a place for you to register your, your thoughts about that. And we've seen change in a number of things that we've done in the past. Like I said, the PFAS chemicals in the water, but I see how much more effective it is when I have 6 million members saying, this needs to stop. We have to use our collective power and make these changes. And I would say, look, there's a story in the book that is a heartbreak, and that is about the inclined infant sleepers that were on the market. We went up against one of the most powerful and trusted brands in America, and that's Fisher-Price. And it took years to get that infant sleeper off the market because it was designed by a toy maker not a pediatrician. I got to say, I agree with you. I think we have to use our voices, but it's also kind of frustrating for individuals to have to continually push back against large corporations. How do you get past this feeling of helplessness when it seems like your fight is long, that these problems are so ingrained and so institutional? We've been here before, Jean. And think back to the time when Silent Spring was a book that sort of started raising our awareness about all the chemicals on our environment. We didn't have an EPA. We didn't have a Consumer Product Safety Commission. We didn't have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You're right. We have to live day to day, but we are at a crossroads right now where we need to modernize the protections and the consumer rights that we have in the marketplace. And that's going to take all of us 
fighting to secure those rights. We need to see rules that are fair. We need to see positive incentives in the marketplace. There are companies that do the right thing. And there's a great example of a company that when we discovered there was arsenic in baby formula and it was nature's way and we called them on it and the CEO did the right thing and said, no, we can do better than this. So we can't wait sometimes for mandates. We can incentivize market behavior. And I'll just give you one example about how that happens when you have a community of consumers willing to fight back. Look at seatbelts. A lot of folks don't know we're the ones who made sure that seatbelts are standard in every car. Well, today, it's not only seatbelts that are the life-saving technology, it's forward collision warning, pedestrian spot, lane changing. But many car manufacturers are still making those luxury items and luxury add-ons. And so what we told the car manufacturers are, if you want to be considered and recommended in our top 10 every year, you need to make the life-saving technology standard. Well, because there is no mandate. And so you start to see us be able to shape the market with that kind of consumer power. And we've seen a tremendous amount of change in that time. So I think there are ways to incentivize, and that is one of the tools of our ratings and reviews. We're able to get that information to consumers, and companies know that. They need consumers. They need you to buy their products. But if we flag that those products are not safe or that fast food chain is having chemicals leak into your food, we can make change happen. I'm always heartened when I see corporations doing the right thing, but sometimes they just don't. And sometimes it's up to consumers to fight on our own individual behalfs. I have what my husband calls my Comcast voice, sadly, which is the voice that I use when I'm getting on to uh, fight with the cable company about the fact that something's gone kaflooey and I need it to be fixed and I'm not particularly good with technology, so I get frustrated. Out comes the Comcast voice. Not my best moments, by the way. But you must be, I'm imagining, incredibly good at this after all of these years doing what you do. When you are confronted with a consumer slight, a consumer problem in your own life, besides fighting the big fight, what are the steps that you take to fight the small fight? You have to start with awareness. I say two things, caution and curiosity. Question, all right, what is the agenda behind this particular problem that I'm trying to sort through? What are the sources of information I can turn to? What are the trusted sources of information I could turn to? But the reality is, and I'll give you an example that did happen to me, and it happened around misinformation. And uh, once again, the burden is on us. My father, lifelong diabetic, and one day he broke out into a sweat and I recognized the signs of diabetic shock. And, and then he confessed to me that he believed a doctor on the internet that he was watching the webinar and it said, stop taking your medication. There is a different way. And of course that led him down a, a rabbit hole of what to do. Imagine, how do you control for that? How do you control for all those pop-up ads that children are vulnerable to, that older Americans are vulnerable to? I think the problem is bigger than all of us. And that's why we need a movement uh, to change that. 
It is bigger than all of us. And we have four or five big major platform companies that are really structuring what we see, how we see it, when we see it. And that's got to stop. We need to compel our federal agencies to get the technologists they need to understand what's happening in the marketplace. We had to change. Consumer Reports, when I came, were not evaluating products for their privacy, right? Every product you have in your home now is connected to the internet, to another product. You're being surveilled when you're at your home. You get in the car, that's tracking where you go. So we created a digital lab and I had to bring in new capabilities, new talents around technology so that when you buy your television, now you can select the television that is not listening to you, that is not hackable, and that is not tracking the television shows and you know how to turn those off. Now, the moment we published those ratings, all the manufacturers started calling us. Oh, could you walk us through that? What else will you be rating? And that's what we do now with peer-to-peer payment apps as well. Not all of them are as secure as you think. So I think we need the capabilities. We need to know that it's not just consumer advocates. I need people who are on the front line. I need women who are on the front lines. We have women control more than $10 trillion of household financial assets. That's incredible power that we need to realize, right? And 90% of women who say that they live with a partner, they report sharing or holding primary responsibility for how financial decisions are made. So that's an enormous amount of untapped power that we have to make change happen. And we need to compel that change in a way that recognizes that we have things we can do individually, but some of the changes we seek are gonna require all of us raising our voice together. We will leave it there. Marta Tolado, President and CEO of Consumer Reports. The book is Buyer Aware, Harnessing Our Consumer Power for a Safe, Fair, and Transparent Marketplace. And you can find more at buyeraware.cr.org. Thank you so much for this today. Oh, thank you, Jane. It was a pleasure. Before we dive into Mailbag, let me just take a sec to remind everyone that Her Money is really grateful for the support of BCU. BCU is a credit union, and it's a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't just happen at a single point on a single day, but rather at many different stages of your life. That's why BCU likes to say they are here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. You can learn more about about eligibility for membership at www.bcu.org. And her money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I was wondering, because you are so, I guess, Southern, for lack of a better word. <laughs> You're, you know, do you have a Comcast voice? Um, I definitely use my Southern accent when I need more hand-holding. In New York City. How about when you're pissed off? If I'm pissed off, I try to sound like a New Yorker (laughs) because I think they're tougher. If I need help, I try and sound like a Southern Belle who just really needs, you know, a helping hand. But if I if I want to kick ass and take names, then I'm like, hey, yeah, help me over here. 
I don't know what the right thing to do is when you're really facing a consumer problem these days. You know, when something has gone wrong, the product has broken, you call customer service, you don't get the response that you're looking for. I mean, I know the steps to take. You dispute it on your credit card. You write the note on your credit card so they have all the ammunition. First of all, you put it on a credit card. If it's anything that you think could potentially go wrong, this is what credit cards are for. The consumer protections are so much better than paying in any other way. So put it on a credit card. But, you know, beyond that, you dispute it. You work your way up the management chain. You write letters. You make phone calls. You hope you get a response. And sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah. I mean, is there anything over your years reporting this that you feel like is like the secret sauce that tends to work more often than not? Social media. I will take to social media and I will use my platform. And many of us have platforms these days that we can use to talk to customer service directly in a way that a letter just doesn't work anymore. An email goes into the void. You put it out there on Twitter on Instagram, on Facebook, where you've got a lot of followers and other people who have your back. And by the way, it's not limited to people who are influencers, right? They say about women that when we like something, we tell, I don't know, a handful of people. When we don't like something, I believe the number is 17 people that we tell. And you put it out there on social media, it is just amplified. I mean, I think that's what social media is for. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. It's unfortunate, I think, that we have to escalate it ourselves to get attention. But if that's what's required, then it's what you got to do. Yeah. And by the way... We joke about Comcast. We're actually very happy Comcast subscribers. But years ago, when we moved into our house in New Jersey, we were having just a really hard time getting our service hooked up. And there was some baseball game that Elliot really, really wanted to watch. And so I actually did tweet, Comcast is ruining my weekend. And this very, very nice PR person who knew me because he used to work for Vanguard found me through my email because he had it, wrote me a letter and took care of it. And that was personal and that was nice. And it was in the infancy of using social media to solve consumer problems. But we've called it a Comcast voice kind of (laughs) ever since. And and there's no reason for that. We should think of a new name to give it. If our listeners have any suggestions, they should let us know. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. Shall we take some questions today? Let's dive into our mailbag before I offend anybody else. Yeah. (laughs) Our first question today comes to us from Jackie. She writes, Hi, I'm hoping you can point us in the right direction. My daughter's graduating in December from college. She has a really good job lined up, one where she negotiated for an additional $6,000 a year in pay. Because she had scholarships through school, we've only had to use her 529 for a few summer classes, her internship fees, and this extra semester of college. So she'll have around 15,000 remaining in the account. Our accountant told us that since she didn't need the 529 because of her scholarship, she can withdraw the money. I believe she'd like to do that as she's looking to purchase an RV. Is it possible for her to withdraw it this year to minimize her tax burden? Her 2023 income will be much larger than this year. 
Also, I'm not sure she's considered this, but if she doesn't want to pay taxes on the 529 balance, is it possible to roll it into an IRA? Any advice you could give would be greatly appreciated. So first of all, Jackie, thank you so much for writing. Congratulations on all of your daughter's success. Congratulations for teaching her so well, right? If she knew to negotiate for an additional $6,000 a year in salary, somebody taught her that. And my guess is that that person was you. So very, very good job. It's terrific that she's got $15,000 remaining in the account I mean, one thing I would think about before you pull it out of there is if grad school is going to be in the cards for her at any point in time. If it is, then you may want to talk to her about allowing that money to continue to grow because graduate school can be much more expensive even than four-year college. If she does say, no thanks, I would like to withdraw this money, Yes, she should be able to withdraw it this year in order to minimize her tax burden. My first question is, is that money hers or yours? And you should look at the ownership of that 529 before any withdrawal is made. I'm not sure if she's not the owner of the account that she can be the one to withdraw it at her tax rate. You may have to be the one to withdraw it at your tax rate, or you may need to change the ownership of the account before you make the withdrawal. But yeah, withdrawing in a year where taxes or where her tax rate is lower would definitely be advantageous. And just so you know what you're looking at, if you are pulling money out of a 529 for non-qualified expenses, which are generally non-education related expenses, you're looking at a 10% penalty on the earnings as well as paying federal income tax. The penalty, if she had a full scholarship to college, and I'm not sure based on your letter if she got a full ride, if she had a full scholarship to college, then the penalty is waived, which would be a very nice thing for her future purchase. Rolling the money into an IRA is not going to void the federal income taxes on the withdrawal. But what it will do if she puts the money into a traditional IRA is give her a tax deduction. And you all will have to do the math based on her tax bracket to figure out how much of the tax burden the tax deduction will offset or whether it makes more sense for her to put it into a Roth IRA because of her young age. When you're young and the money has more time to grow, money on which you've already paid taxes going into a Roth just can supercharge your way to retirement. So I would Perhaps ask your accountant based on her tax bracket to help run the numbers on all of these things or run them yourselves. But it sounds like she is off to a fantastic start. And uh, I've been watching some YouTube videos and TikToks about people and their fantastic looking RVs lately. The whole RV life thing is very appealing and looks very fun. So I hope she's off to a great adventure. Thanks for the question. 
Yeah. And Jean, you make a great point about grad school, right? Like if she's buying an RV, then she strikes me as the kind of person who may still be looking to find herself and she may want to find herself in grad school in a few years. So really good point there. Although the thing about buying the RV because she has to live close to the project sites sounds like she may just be in a nomadic sort of a job. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are a variety of project sites. This may be her career that she settled on, but an RV, if they're remote areas, may be the best way for her to actually live comfortably while tackling whatever sort of job this is. Yeah, definitely. Our next question comes to us from Michelle. She writes, hi, Jean, I'm a big fan of your show. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with your listeners. I'm a 36-year-old woman who got married in 2021. My husband and I have been working with a financial advisor who has recommended life insurance and short-term disability insurance. Each of us has a certain amount of life insurance and disability through our jobs, but it seems wise to have our own policies should we leave those jobs or if either of our companies downsizes. I do have a million-dollar life insurance policy should anything happen. My husband and I make around $400,000 combined. Now I'm trying to determine which level of short-term disability to get. Our advisor, who works for a company that sells insurance, recommends at least 10 years on the theory that if we were to have a child and something happened, I'd have 10 years to figure out a plan B while getting some lost income replaced and could at least get a child to school age. But my understanding is that the statistics show five years is sufficient. It's also $800 a year cheaper as far as premiums go. So should I go with five or 10 years? As an aside, my husband was turned down for life insurance and therefore won't be eligible for disability insurance either outside of work due to a medical condition that the underwriters don't like to see, but that his doctor says is not cause for concern. How much sleep should I lose over this? Thank you. Thank you so much for the question. I gotta say, as I was reading it and hearing it once again, I knew that your advisor worked for a company who sold life insurance and disability insurance. And the reason that I knew is that I would not have necessarily put life insurance on your list. Life insurance is for people who have dependents. And with the exception of considering your husband a dependent, because of this medical condition that you've been told that you don't have to worry about, it doesn't sound to me like you have any, and it's not a sure thing that you will have any in the future. You said that having a child is a possibility, but not a definite decision that you've made. I am wary of the advice that you are getting from this advisor, particularly about the life insurance. Now, not as wary about the disability insurance. Chances are better, statistically, that we will become disabled during our working lives than they are that we will die. So the need for disability insurance is something that far too few people actually think about and, and more people should actually have. The question is, how much are you getting through your job? And when combined with your husband's income, 
is that enough to keep you guys afloat, to maintain your lifestyle? If it's not, then disability insurance makes sense. If it is, then you may not necessarily need that either. Now, the the one thing that you didn't tell me that I wish you had is what you do. If you work in a particularly dangerous or physical profession, then I would say, yeah, you go for the disability insurance and you go for probably the 10-year period and as much as you can possibly get. But otherwise, I would probably look to my company first, life insurance through your company, through your husband's company, and disability insurance through your company, through your husband's company. They are both going to be more cost-effective as group policies than they are as individual policies. The next thing to do is pick up the phone and call employee benefits and ask whether those policies are portable. So that means if you were to leave this job, would you be able to pay a sum of money and take that coverage with you? This is particularly important for your husband because he was unable to qualify for insurance. So he is, and again, this gets more important if you have a child, he is going to want to be able to look at taking those policies with him. But to answer your question directly, I would probably go for the 10 years rather than the five years if you determine that you need it at all based solely on the fact that as we get older, disability insurance is tougher to come by. I bought my own disability insurance policy in my early 40s And qualifying was really tough. And so if you determine that you actually need it, I'd probably go for the 10 years. The other thing I would do is just shop it around. I don't necessarily trust this person who's trying to sell it to you to advise you on exactly how much you need. But thanks so much for a really good question. I feel like disability insurance is not something we talk about often enough. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to weigh in. Yeah, it's such a good point. And Jean, you always say that you're much more likely to be disabled, right? Yeah, 100% if you look at the statistics on this. And many people just don't think about buying it in part because it's so expensive. It is not a cheap item. The other last question that's on my mind and I'm just going to throw it out there is why short-term disability and not long-term disability? Usually, particularly those of us who have decent incomes and who are savers have the savings to cover the first six months or so that we are out of work. Where it gets difficult, and the policy that I bought is a long-term disability policy, is with that longer period of time. I actually think what you were quoted was a long-term disability policy because you're talking about a five-year period or a 10-year period. As you shop it around, you're just going to want to make sure that you've got the semantics right so that you can compare apples to apples. Mm -hmm. Great advice. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. And I just wanted to let you know that this week's episode is also sponsored by Daffy. 
Jaffe is a not-for-profit community built around a new, modern way to give through its unique donor-advised fund. And their mission is to help people be more generous more often, which is something we can all get behind. They make it easy for you to contribute. You can contribute with a linked bank, with Apple Pay, and any major debit or credit card. You can even use stock or crypto to make donations. And then... Whenever you want, you can give to over 1.5 million charities, schools, and faith-based organizations in a matter of seconds, either from their app or their website. They just launched Daffy for Families, too, which enables you to give with your loved ones from the same funds. So start giving with Daffy today and get your free $25 to give to the charity of your choice. Just go to daffy.org slash hermoney. In this week's Thrive, how to go green and save some green during the holidays. This episode, it's been all about making a difference with our money. And another way that we can do that is by planning our holidays with the environment in mind. And by the way, being environmentally friendly doesn't have to be expensive at all. At hermoney.com, we've got tips for adapting your holiday plans to be kinder to the planet and your wallet. First, take a look at how you're traveling. If you're not going far, think about taking the bus or train or car instead of a plane. If you are planning to fly, you can actually reduce the plane's carbon footprint by packing light and adding less weight to the flight. And if you're staying at a hotel, think twice before opening every complimentary bottle of soap or shampoo. You can reduce waste by using only what you need or bringing your own toiletries. And if you're like me and have a drawer full of shampoo samples, holiday travel is the perfect opportunity to use them. Next, plan ahead to reduce food waste. If you're in charge of cooking a big holiday meal, make a list of all the ingredients you need and exactly how much you need before you go to the grocery store. You can use tools like the Guestimator on savethefood.com to figure out serving sizes for your meals and make sure you buy enough without going overboard. While you're cooking, save your veggie scraps. You can freeze them and take them out later to make stock. And once the meal is over, Consider packing the leftovers for your guests to take home, eating the leftovers yourself the next day, or freezing them for an easy dinner down the road. Last thing, we burn through a lot of wrapping paper during the holidays. If you're about to buy your next batch, choose a recyclable option. That means avoiding any wrapping paper with glitter, foil, or plastic. You can also DIY it by using scrap paper or newspaper. And for an even more environmentally friendly option, consider using fabric instead of paper. You can find scarves at thrift shops, tie them around your gifts with a simple knot on top and use them year after year after year. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Marta Tolado for reminding us that we have a voice as consumers and showing us how to use that voice to protect ourselves and our families. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines, BCU, and Daffy. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and the show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.